Okay, we are in this series, The Greatest Love of All. And this series in particular is going to be focusing on Jesus and what he gave, his sacrifice for us. There is no record that is more detailed out in this big fat book, uh, the Bible, than the record of those hours just leading up to his crucifixion. I believe it's significant that it's not an accident that God spent so such a large volume of this book focusing on that. And I believe it's, it's because this is really where we get and experience his love, which I also believe that we are all desperately in need of, whether we're aware of it or not, that there's a big hole in our heart that needs to be loved by Jesus Christ and that there's nothing like his love and nothing more fulfilling than his love. I'm excited about Jesus. I love Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ saved my life and changed my life in so many ways, and I believe that I'm alive today and sane today because of him and his love and his loving me in a time that I was least deserving of it. And so I'm moved. I'm very deeply moved by this story. I'm glad that this year in particular we're spending so much time on it because there's so much to it. And honestly, as much as we're spending five teaching series, five weeks teaching it, we're still not actually covering even close to all the scriptures that are written on this topic. So it just goes to show you how vast it is, and I believe that God wanted it emphasized. This particular section that we're um, going to be looking at, we had left off last week where they grabbed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and all of his friends left him, which was um, an extreme betrayal and, uh, and, and was amazing as far as his love and his persistence in going forward with what he was called to do. We're going to pick it up in Matthew 26 and verse 57 after they arrested him. And, and just to give you a sense, because this story is kind of split the details of it, uh, among the four Gospels, what happened, there's a little teeny bit that's recorded in the Gospel of John about the fact that right after they took him to Gethsemane, they took him to Annas, who, was, who used to be the high priest. Um, and then he was taken to Caiaphas, who is currently the high priest and the son-in-law to uh, Annas. So in Matthew uh, 26 and verse 57, it says, Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders assembled. And so he is now before, just to give you a sense of the background of this, they they picked him up like late at night sometime, we don't know when. Um, And they dragged him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were 71 men meeting in the evening that were the elders and... um, and the pre- chief priests and the teachers. So it gives you just a sense, you know, like what, can you imagine what that's like as far as being dragged before these 71 people? And it, it, as we go, you'll see uh, the picture that's getting painted. It says um, in verse 58, but Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. You know, I was wondering because in what we had read last week, you know what happened is Peter told Jesus, I'll never betray you. You know, I, I will go with you. I'll fight, you know, to the end, et cetera. He cut off, you know, one of the guard's ears and, you know, because he's like, oh, I'm going to fight for you. 
And so it's interesting because we know that Jesus told him that you are going to deny me three times. And so it makes me wonder, and and think about this for a minute because it helps me to understand the scripture when I'm reading it. This is a dear friend. Peter, you know, Jesus was a, a mentor, but also a very close friend, somebody that he spent, you know, day in and day out, you know, for a long, long time and went everywhere with. And they had arrested him and taken him off. Think about what it would be like for you to follow someone that you loved like that. You know, it just it makes me just sort of think because we know that the, the, that the denials are coming up. It's a famous part of the story. But what drove him even to begin with? What, what do you think? I mean, it's just like it doesn't write it all out here. But some of this is just like what, are, what do you think might be going on in Peter's heart even, you know, in following somebody that he loved so much? And, and um, it, I doubt that it was just, you know, um, like being a looky-loo, you know, like the people that look by at the accidents or things like that. You know, it took a lot, I think, of... I just, I think of the fear, I think about the love, I think about the confusion, because for so many of the disciples, they didn't get, Jesus was teaching them over and over again about his death, but they weren't hearing that because they expected a political redeemer. So, um, so I think, you know, sometimes I, I think like it's very possible that Peter was expecting that there would be a victory, like a battle and a victory or something like that, that there would be conquering, not that he would be taken off in sort of a defeated place. And so I'm thinking it was very disorienting and shocking and kind of like what's really going on and I thought it was going to be this whole other thing and what is this all about. Um, So anyway, so he's following verse 59. It says, The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Wow. Do you get how extreme this is? This is 71 leaders of the, the religious people of the time. The leaders, it would be like the leaders of the churches or something like that. 71 leaders of the faith at the time that were looking. Now, what would it take for a group of that many people to be that fired up that they're trying to look for something to kill someone? Not just to arrest them, not just to besmirch their character or something like that but what would it seriously I was thinking about that that what would it take for you to be motivated to say I want that person to die these are human beings like you and I it's not a small thing to want somebody to be put to death is it I mean think about the degree of uh, it it just gives you a picture as we're going to be looking at this you can see how intense and how emotional and how lathered up these people were that 71 supposedly put together leaders, they're on top, they've got all the power, all the cards are in their hand, could be so angry. And what did Jesus do? What exactly did he do? He healed people. He loved people. There was no crime committed at all. But here we've got 71 hotshot guys in the middle of the night trying to come up with lies, not just to put them away or to, you know, have them in the newspaper, you know, like a smear campaign, but to put him to death. That's intense. So anyway, it says that they can put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. So it also shows you that how, how clean he was as far as character goes. Finally, two came forward 
and declared, the fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, it's interesting because do you remember in the gospel of um, John 2 in verses 18 through 22, you know, Jesus had talked about the fact that if the temple is destroyed, that he could rebuild it in three days. It doesn't say I will destroy it or I can destroy it, whatever this statement is. It says, I am able to destroy. He didn't say, I am able to destroy. And then it even says in that verse of scripture in John that he was referring to his body being the temple and having it be rebuilt in three days, and that he was teaching about the resurrection. But you can see what's going on here is that they're so rabid, you know, froth. I can just see them like frothing at the mouth of wanting to take him down. They got nothing. They got bupkis. They're just like, we got to come up with something. You know, we'll look for skeletons. There aren't no skeletons. There's nothing to find. So what they do is they take something he said and they twist it around to mean something else to accuse him. You know, if somebody's a, you know, it's interesting because you ever had that happen to you? Somebody take your words and read into them a meeting that had nothing anything. It was so opposite. You know, you can say things that sound very similar and, it, and it's seeing exactly the opposite of what you actually said. I've had that happen. It's, it's one of the craziest things ever. You say something, it was, and somehow just changing it a little bit with a little inflection or what have you, and you're saying exactly the opposite thing, and that's what's going on here, that somebody finds it. If somebody's intent, you know, they were intent on getting him. They, they couldn't find anything real, so that's what they came up with. In verse 62, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And next week we're going to be reading a bunch, because I think it's amazing, of the Old Testament records where it talks about Jesus being silent when he was accused. It was prophesied, you know, hundreds of years before it actually happened, before this actually happened. But this is interesting because how many people that are cute, that are, how many people do you see on death row that don't even try to argue it? Is that really very common? Somebody's planning, anybody plan, you know, ready to get executed and they're like, nope, got anything to say for yourself? No, I just think I'll go. So, let alone an innocent man. So, another thing that I think is so compelling about this is that they did not take the life of Jesus Christ. He gave it up. We see this over and over in the scriptures that it was his choice. It said last week in Gethsemane that he could call God and he'd have 72,000 angels with just the word spoken. God would have said, okay, you're out of the deal. God told him he, you, he could be off the hook if he wanted. God would have backed him up on that because he wasn't forcing Jesus to the crucifixion. So, um, so he remained silent, didn't try to defend himself, nothing. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Or, the, you know, the Christ means the Savior, the Messiah the, um, that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Because all throughout the Old Testament, there was prophecies that God was going to send a Savior. He was going to send a Messiah. And it said uh, in 64, yes, it is as you say. Now that was not going to get him off the hook. That was exactly going in the opposite direction of trying to, you know, if you're trying to appeal to people that are mad at you and they say, well, tell us, are you the Christ? 
um, he, well, I didn't quite say that, you know, because this is not going to be happy news to them, that he would say, yes, I am. He, he, he was well aware of the fact that that would just get them more fired up more than ever before. And then it says, but I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That is not what you say to people. That is not what you say to people that are already really mad at you uh, and want to kill you. Mm. And in verse 30, uh, 65, it says, then the high priest tore his clothes. Now, I got to tell you, Middle Eastern people, one of the things that they do when they're emotional is they rip their clothes. You know, it's like an Eastern custom. When you got emotional, like you, somebody died and you were sad and upset, the, it, it's actually really cool that they showed emotion that way. You know, we're not like our society where it's just like, oop, can't show any feeling on my face. So they were like, you know, they, were like, they would beat on their chest and rip their clothes and pound on the ground and wail and cry out and all kinds of things. It's kind of cool. Um, but the high priests weren't allowed to. It says in Leviticus that, you know, they had priestly garments. There were, it said specifically that God ordered them not to tear their clothing. So this is kind of extreme because they know this, that, that, the guy, that the high priest would get this out of control with his emotions. That he's ripping his priestly garments in the Sanhedrin. Do you see how you got to be, you know people that have gotten this mad, Right. We've seen the craziness. You know, you see crazy anger where people get, think about what it takes to get to that place. You know, the obsessive stuff where and you feed on things. And honestly, I think everybody's experienced that in some way internally. It feels a little crazy inside, you know, as far as the things that feed that. Uh, but that's basically, that is where he went. He, he tore his clothes and he said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Wow, you can see this is a rally. Oh. And they said, he is worthy of death, they answered. <coughs> Pardon me. Wow. It's a group. What would it be like to be completely innocent? You've done nothing your whole life but do good and have your life be about serving and being there for others and pouring out your life for other people to have 71 of the religious leaders screaming that you deserve to die in your face. Wow. What would be going on for you in that situation? I think this is a, Jesus, Jesus was a man with feelings. This isn't somebody that didn't feel. It, I'm sure it felt alone, I would think. I'm sure it felt overwhelming. I'm sure it was kind of confusing, too. Having that many people hate you that intensely you know, and it's just sort of like, wow, it's not like he did anything. You get the human side of it. From a, from a sense knowledge, you can see what was happening is people loved Jesus and that pissed them off. You know, that he had that kind of influence, that people were listening to him, that people were following him, and the way that they were wanting to deal with it is control. You know? Because nobody was following them and listening. They, they're, they're the guys with the power. But there was nothing like the, the way that Jesus impacted people. 
and the envy, because it says later that Pilate knew that the reason that, that they were crucifying him is out of envy. It's a power thing, an envy, an emotion, just definitely really, beyond power, it was actually like extremely crazy emotion-driven. It says, in verse 67, then they spit on his face and struck him with their fist. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you. In Mark, it says that they had a hood over him. Now, mind you, they had a hood over him. And they were taking turns, treating him like a punching bag and making jokes, saying, guess who hit you, Christ? Here's the big prophet. Tell us, who was that that just punched you in the face? They were having a good old time surrounding him like that. Now, you know what hit me? I'm a woman, so I don't get what it's like. But Jesus being a man, it's a, like I can imagine what it be, would be like as a woman, but... As a man, what's it like to have somebody spit in your face and you do nothing? Or somebody punch you and make fun of you and you don't stand up for yourself? What? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that, just even the intensity of that. And the thing is, is Jesus had, had the promise from God that God told him he could change his mind. He didn't have to keep going forward with this. He sat there and took it and all the pain over and over and over again by choice for you and for me. The reason this record is so moving is because he did it because he loved us. He did this for you. It was so worth it, it says. It says for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. That he was looking ahead at what it would do for each and every one of us and what a difference it would make for our lives that he was willing to pay the price. Because I'm telling you, talk about what would that be like for hours, for hours to sit there. I mean, it's one thing to just be, what would it be like to have your face covered and having people treating you like a punching bag? But then on top of it, using his ministry, using his connection with God to make fun of him about it? Yeah, yeah, big prophet you are, huh? Man, that scripture just like, um, it just blows my mind. Because couldn't it, had to be hard. You know, this, this wasn't an easy path to take. That's why you can understand that Jesus asked in Gethsemane three times, if there's another way, God, can I do it? If there's any other way to do this, can we do, can we do it differently? <clears throat> but he said, nevertheless, not my will, God, but your will be done, is what he said to the Father. Um, <clears throat> this is just leading up to the crucifixion. We're not even there yet at the crucifixion. And then in verse thir- 69, it says, Now Peter was sitting in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know that man. In verse 73, a little while later, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them for your accent gives you away. And then he began to call curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know that man. 
immediately. A rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And I get why you'd weep bitterly with that realization of what that would be like when he heard the cock crow and he was like, oh my God, I told the Lord I would never betray him this way. And yet he's screaming at somebody, I don't know him. To feel like you'd left somebody that had been so good to you. You know, Peter was loved by Jesus like nobody else. I mean, what would it be like to have Jesus, you know, in the flesh in your life every day, day by day? To be that good to you, to teach you so much, and to watch him heal all those people. Um, And then in verse 27, we see the Judas, I'll just read through this. It says, early in the morning... All the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. Oh, that was a very reasonable decision by these fine gentlemen, 71 gentlemen, based on all kinds of logic. Uh, you know, I need a Kleenex. <laughs> cannot be crying up here because that leads to my nose running. In verse 2 it says, They bound him led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So basically what we have here is we've got the first trial that happened before the Jews. What happened with the Jews is they could, as you see what they're asking for, they, they decided as a body of the Sanhedrin to put him to death, but they didn't have the power to do so because Rome was still ruling the area. But the, in, that, in that immediate area, the people were Jewish, the predominant people in the area. And so for the Romans to keep peace, they definitely allowed the, the, the ruling um, Jews, the Sanhedrin, to keep their own laws and to have a, an incredible amount of power and influence, etc. But they could not actually act on capital punishment. But if they were going to bring someone to the Roman government and say, we want them put to death, the Romans would do it. It's not like, it's not their people, they don't care. You know, it's just like, okay, you want somebody to die, well, you know, if that keeps peace among your people, we'll, you know, do that for you. I mean, they had reason to expect that when they said he, he's going to be put to death. So in verse 3, when Judas, who, was, who betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he seized, was seized with remorse and return the 30 silver coins to the chief priest and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. I, I think probably the shock, which I think is the big shock in the crucifixion, is the innocence of Jesus uh, and to be so brutally executed. It says, what is it to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Jesus threw the money in the temple and left, and he went away and hanged himself which is un- you can understand with coming to, I don't know what he was expecting when he betrayed Jesus. There's a lot of theories about what was going on for him. Some say they thought that Judas might be, which makes sense, and it's possible that he was trying to push Jesus's hand as being a, a political leader. Who knows? Could be doing just to get in with the other guys. It uh, doesn't really explain that part of it, but it's also understandable that with 
seeing that he was actually going to be put to death, that the gravity of it would cause him to be, to pierce through. Uh, and so he committed suicide. In verse 6, the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury, treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place of, for foreigners. That's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. It's Again, it's interesting, and we're not going to have time to go through all of it, but it's, it's amazing how much uh, and how explicit it is in, in hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before the, that prophecies were told of what was going to happen with Jesus, and they were carried out exactly as it was prophesied. And this is documented as far as when it was when these things were written before. Um, in verse 11, it says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate answered him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Because, of course, if you're about to be put to death, why would you not argue anything for your favor? And in particular, we see as it plays out that Pilate absolutely believed in Jesus' innocence, so especially it didn't make any sense as to why he would be so willing to be put to death. Now, it doesn't... um, uh, speak about it in the, in this gospel, but in one of the other gospels, it talks about how um, uh, they it, it um, Pilate basically after a time sent him over to Herod for a little while because Herod was over the providence in Galilee and Jesus was a Galilean, and so and Herod was it's kind of really bizarre that the we're not we we're not, we don't have time to go over there, but when Pilate sent him to Herod because he didn't really want to deal with it. You see over and over again that Pilate was not really wanting to execute Jesus. And also because Pilate and Herod didn't get along, they, they were kind of com- com- competitors in a way. They were di- over different providences. So he sent him over to Herod, and when he gets to Herod, Herod says, oh, like Herod had been dying to meet Jesus because he'd heard about the miracles, and basically is like saying, dance, monkey, dance. He's like, oh, cool, why don't you do me some, I want to see what you can do kind of thing, and Jesus doesn't do it. You know, Jesus is this same thing, doesn't say anything, and Herod, I don't know, probably gets bored or something, sends him back to Pilate. I don't know, it doesn't actually say why he goes back to Pilate, but he goes back to Pilate. And then, um, so Jesus is not trying to defend himself, and in verse 15 it says, Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas, the murderer? No, it doesn't say that, but Barabbas was a murderer. (laughs) I'm just putting it in there for emphasis, because everybody knew him. It would be like, who do you want, Jeffrey Dahmer or Jesus? Like, who, you know, I get to let one person go free. So it's kind of interesting because he picks, like, somebody that's a notorious criminal to, you know, to put alongside of Jesus. You'd think it would be kind of a no-brainer to go, gee, we get to let one of these two people off the hook. Let's pick the good guy. You'd think that that would be how it would go. Um, it says, for he knew out of envy that they had handed Jesus to him. 
Pilate knew this. He knew that it's stupid. He knew that Jesus did nothing. He knew Jesus was completely innocent. So he's trying to set something up to just go, okay, here, you got your choice. You decide. In verse 19, when Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So his wife is having dreams saying, please do not be involved in killing this man. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. And then he said, well, what should I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. They're yelling, crucify him. What in the heck? I mean, imagine this. This is crazy. This is a mob of people that are turning out for this. It's just interesting, like, at what point, what you can kind of see what it might have taken for people to get that angry. Here Jesus had done, he was famous for healing people and doing good. And here, what do you think was going on for those people that are yelling, crucify him? Do you know what I mean? Like, you ever met some bitter, angry people? (laughs) You know, where there's anything good and they're going to be hateful about it? It's dark, man. This is dark that you've got a crowd of people that would actually want someone to die because, and you know what the Bible says, which is really true too, is that when there's light, people that don't want to deal with having darkness exposed, because what happens when there's light, you see squiggly, nasty things, you know, when the light comes on. You see the dirt, you see the, that kind of stuff. Whenever there's light, it reveals things that we don't want to see. And some people will go to such great extent to stay in darkness and to keep crap hidden and to not have it be apparent that what, where they're at, the darkness of their hearts, that they're, that they're attacking the source of the light and that's what's going on. Because you can't come up with any other reason. I mean, it fits with all kinds of other scriptures that we see and also human behavior that we see. You know, you ever see where people attack something that's good and get themselves so worked up and so frothed up about it? comes from wanting to stay in darkness and wanting to stay, keep things hidden. It says, um, that's dark. And then it says, so they're saying, so they answered, crucify him. Verse 23, why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. He's not giving up. Are, he's, just, he's probably going, are you, are you crazy? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. Can you imagine the throngs of people standing out there and Jesus is standing there knowing that he's giving his life for those people. This is the multitude. You'd think, wouldn't you like to think that if you're giving something for a worthy cause or trying to bless somebody that you get appreciated? That you'd think that there was, val- that, you know, you'd get some validation or at least people give you props that maybe he'd be surrounded by people going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for doing this for us. What would it be like? What do you think as a human being it would be like to stand there after being beaten all night, used as a punching bag, and have a mo- mass of people that you're giving your life for? He was giving his life for that group of people that are screaming, crucify him, crucify him. You can hear, imagine the screams. 
what it would like, be like to hear a crowd yelling that over and over again. In verse 24, it says, when Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was started. I mean, I'm, I wasn't, when I'm yelling, I, I'm not even coming close to what this is. There's an uproar. I, I'm just one little voice here. So you can imagine, you know, masses of people screaming this. <sighs> Got to wonder, you know, if Jesus is going, wow, this is rough, guys. <laughs> this is rough, God. Verse 24, it says, when Pilate saw that he was getting, oh, yeah, sorry, uproar, we already read that, was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood. He said, it's your responsibility. And all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Which just, uh, people turn that into all kinds of weird stuff. It just, it's an Eastern thing saying, we'll own it. We'll take this decision. We're ready. Uh, In verse 26, it says, Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, Roman floggings were famous for being famous stories about that there was nothing more brutal than a Roman flogging. You know, it's funny because I was always saying Jewish floggings were, it's a cat of nine tails, which means it's like a whip of nine things, and they have metal. They have like sharp metal uh, at the end of those nine. And so the Jewish floggings were 40, 40 stripes that they'd whip somebody 40 times. And so that they didn't over overstep, they'd do 39 just to make sure that they didn't miscount. I had always thought that when I read this, <coughs> I just did, was looking and find out that I w- found out that I was wrong. Romans went way beyond the 40 lashes. That's why they were so brutal. The Jewish ones were more civil with 40 lashes with a cat of nine tails. Roman floggings were so famous that a good amount of people didn't survive the flogging. They, they didn't even live through the flogging. You can imagine if somebody is whipping your back even 40 times with a thing of nine whips at a time with metal, what your back would look like 40 times. It went way beyond that. What do you think his back looked like? What would you hazard to, see, to think about what his back looked like? And again, he didn't walk away because of loving us. This, every piece of this, of him hanging in there, that's, that's what it says in the Bible, that's what kept him going, was love for you and for me. It says in verse, oh yeah, actually, no, I'm, I'm going to save this one for next week. Um, there's just this story to me, it's in, it really is every time I read the specifics of it that it takes my breath away. You know, when I think about the incredible amount of hours and hours of torture that he endured that just went on and on and on. He'd been up all night where they're punching him in the face, and he's coming before this. and it, it both, On both things, you've got the physical part, which we think about. But honestly, for me, it's like, on top of that, it's, it's the humiliation. It's the accusations, the wrong accusations, that just the things that were just, what it would have felt like to have that many people against you when all you're trying to do is love and give. That's all he was trying to do. 
But the reason that this is in here, it's, just not, it's not just so we can just sit around and feel bad. It's just, it's that we get how important we are to God and to Jesus Christ. If you're ever in a time that you do not feel loved or you question his love for you, God did this for you while we were yet sinners. It's not like, and I get that. You know, me in particular, I think the big thing when when I got saved, when I said yes and decided that I wanted Jesus to be my Lord, I could not believe it. I remember when a girl told me that Jesus loved me and gave his life for me just the way I was. I didn't have to do anything to deserve it at all. And that was just so, I don't know why, I had never, I had heard about Jesus a lot, you know. Um, I thought people were stupid that believed in Jesus. But I sure felt pretty stupid that I ever thought that. I still do. But I love the fact that I think about the fact that I was sitting there mocking Jesus, just like these people in the scripture, and he was still willing to sacrifice for me and to to love me this much. This is a place where, I'm telling you, if you're dry, this is a place to feel loved. This is a place to get your tank filled. This is unconditional love that will never go away. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I'm very grateful um, that we have this time to take time to think about the sacrifice of you giving us your son and you, Lord Jesus. Um, I just can't even imagine how you did it. I can't imagine. You know, you had feelings. You had flesh. Um, how you hung in there and kept going through this. And in I can imagine how alone you must have felt in it. And But I get that... Um, how much it must have, how much it, it you needed to really be seeking God and having God there for you. But um, Jesus, I just thank you for your love. I thank you specifically for how much you fought for me and loved me and reached me um, when I was rejecting you over and over again. But your arms were always outstretched to me, and you never rejected me at all. I ask you right now, Lord Jesus, that if there's for each person in this room, that you would help them to feel your love. Um, and I want, actually, you know what, I want to take some time right now to just meditate. And I want you to, if you don't, you know, if however you feel about Jesus, whether you know him, you don't know him, you're not sure about him, but just to imagine being right now in the presence of Jesus in front of you. And... And just asking him, just, Lord, how do you see me? Or Jesus, Jesus, tell me, how do you see me? Just ask to, to, to see his love more for you, to understand him more, to come to know him more, to have a deeper relationship. What are the things you'd like to ask him right now? What are the questions on your heart?
What do you think of me, Jesus? Do you love me? And then is there anything, if there's anything that you would want to say to him, what would it be? What would you want to tell him right now? thank you so much for being here with us today that because of your death and resurrection that you can be among us and be everywhere present I pray that we can all come to experience you more and experience your love and to know you more and to understand you more and understand your heart more for us and Jesus you are the great healer the healer of bodies and of hearts And I pray right now, if there's any place that anyone needs healing, Lord, that they bring it to you and allow you to touch them. Lord, may in this time leading up to celebrating your resurrection, that we just draw you closer, seek you more. I know that that's your desire, Lord, is to be closer to us. So thank you, Lord. I lift these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.